The research for this podcast was supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, as well as the Dan School of Drama and Music at Queen's University. Hello, and welcome to Game Music 101. My name is Dr. Stephanie Lind, and I'm here with media hosts, Michelle Kasabowski and Corey Dilba, as well as my research assistants, Andrew, Caitlin, and Brooke. And we're going to be talking about how music and video games influences various elements, including narrative, plot, emotional response by the players, and a handful of other things. This season's podcast is going to focus on the topic of tropes, which is going to look at essentially characteristic patterns that we know from our previous exposure to media, be it film, television, or other video games, and how our knowledge of these particular story patterns, our knowledge of these particular musical patterns, influences the way that we interact with games. We've each looked at a different game for this week, and we're going to talk about our favorite trope in video games, and we're going to talk about this from the musical standpoint. It's going to be an exciting season. We have lots to talk about, so let's get right into it. Andrew, do you want to tell us about your game this week? I actually did a combination of three games. I looked at all three and sort of compared and contrasted all three with each other. So I looked at the Just Cause series, the Uncharted series, and the Red Dead Redemption game, which is now going to be a series very soon. So a little bit of an outline about each of them. Just Cause 3 follows the story of Rico Rodriguez as he liberates and defeats the enemy-occupied settlements and bases under the evil dictatorship of General Di Ravello. The game was introduced in November 2014 for PS4, Xbox One, and PC platforms. Uncharted follows the story of Nathan Drake, who seeks to uncover mysteries and find lost treasures, sort of like Indiana Jones. Introduced in 2007, that was the first release, and latest release was 2016 with Uncharted 4, the main platform being Sony Systems. Red Dead Redemption follows the story of John Marston, seeking to serve justice to gang members and his assassin set in the early 1900s in the Old West times. It was released on Xbox 360 and PS3 in May of 2010. All right, should be interesting. Caitlin, can you tell us about your game? I am looking at Octopath Traveler, which is a Square Enix game that are re- released this past summer. It's a Japanese role-playing game. Uh, it has eight characters to choose from, each with their own story. And Brooke, what are you going to be talking about in today's episode? The game I decided to look at was Dark Souls. The game was released in 2011 for PS3, Xbox 360, and later for PC. It has recently been remastered for PS4 and just got released for Nintendo Switch. The game is an action RPG where the player goes on an adventure in a dying world. It takes place in a medieval fantasy kingdom where your character is the chosen undead and you must attempt to save the world by rekindling the flame. However, it is unclear throughout the gameplay whether or not the world can be saved and the player can either let the flame fade or continue if they wish. And last but not least, our leader, Dr. Lin. What are we going to hear you talk about today? I'll be looking at a couple of fantasy games. I'm going to be talking about the Elder Scrolls series of games, focusing on Skyrim, Oblivion, and Morrowind. And I'll also talk about Dragon Age series, uh, particularly Dragon Age Origins and Dragon Age Inquisition. So we were looking at tropes in the sense of characteristic narrative patterns. And so I'm curious, in the games that you're looking at, what were some of those tropes that you ended up seeing? Caitlin, why don't you start? Yeah, so this game, uh, Octopath Traveler, has eight different characters. So the biggest trope that I'm very familiar with with multiple games is uh, music that represents character personality or story. And often they use common tropes or stereotypes to tell the audience what the character is just through sound. Since there's eight characters, I'm just going to be looking at two of them because each have their own story. And these two have a common trope shared between them. 
uh, that connects to their stories. Uh, so the first character is Cyrus Albright. He's a scholar who, who works at the Royal Academy in Atlasdam. He teaches the princess of Atlasdam, as well as another girl who I'm not sure what her status is, but she's another high upper class um, character. His true passion is the pursuit of knowledge, is what he's described as. And he goes on a quest looking for a lost home that was stolen some years ago. The second character is Primrose Azelheart. She's described as, and I quote, a high-born daughter of the once-proud House Azelheart, end quote. Her father uh, was murdered, and she's searching for the men who murdered him. So she's become an exotic dancer in the desert town of Sunshade because she heard that the men frequent that location. So the trope shared between them is the use of the waltz rhythm, or the 3-4 time signature with a heavy first beat. Cyrus is specifically a Vienna waltz, a fast waltz. And Primrose, you can't identify it as a waltz, but the 3-4 time signature and the strong first beat, it's very clear to Western audiences that it's a dance rhythm. which ties into her as a dancer, but also her previous status as a part of the upper class. Brooke, you were looking at Dark Souls. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the tropes in that game? So I think the most significant narrative element or trope is when you, as the player, encounter these big boss fights that are the ultimate test of the player's prowess and how that music interacts, especially in Dark Souls. I think it's something that's significant because you don't really have... there's there's a lack of music in general and the most significant part with music are these big boss fights that you encounter. Andrew, what tropes did you encounter in the games you were looking at? Um, across the three games that I looked into, I saw the common trope of the anti-hero being shown quite commonly across all three. So each game, although they're set in their own time period, they're similar in the way that they accomplish their plot. So the player portraying the character, use different forms of violence to defeat enemies, accomplish missions, or just wreak havoc in general in their respective worlds, as well as the fact that the hero or the protagonist in each of these games, they use violence to gain their sense of popularity or earn their place in society. So it's, it's, very, it's a common trope across all three of these games, but they're all communicated in three different ways. Dr. Lin, you're going into the tropes of Skyrim. What elements did you focus in on? I ended up looking at how particular musics and particular physical environments are used to make connections to real-world time periods. What I mean by that is it's a very common thing in fantasy games to take elements from medieval society, and particularly uh, medieval society in Western Europe, to signify like fantasy realms. We see this, for example, in Skyrim when we look at the architecture of the buildings, which are very much based off Germanic architecture. But we also see it in the music. One of the really obvious places where this comes in is in tavern songs and in bard song in many locations in the game. So, for example, in Skyrim, when you go to the taverns in each village that you find, there is typically a 
local bard that's singing a song representative of the Civil War conflict within the game. We drink to our youth, to the days come and gone, for the age of oppression is now nearly done. We'll drive out the empire from this land that we own. The musical style in that particular case is actually in some ways very similar to what elements we would see in medieval music, including the use of modes, uh, including the use of strophic song. Brooke, let's go back to your games first. You're talking about music highlighting the boss fights. Is there anything about the music itself that is characteristic of boss fights in video games? So in these moments of the game, these are really the only times you hear these large works of music that sound very epic or significant throughout gameplay. Many of these scores have these traditional kind of minor diminished sound that you would expect and having these large, overwhelming, big sounding pieces that really tells the audience something significant is happening. These pieces include things like loud dynamics, uh, choir over this big ensemble or orchestra, faster intense rhythm similar to kind of like other games such as uh, something like Legend of Zelda when you are up against Ganon or uh, another enemy in the temple. Often this music will also overpower the gameplay itself with its tone or volume and distracts the player sometimes even from the combat itself. So speaking of action, Andrew, in your action-adventure games, how are you seeing your anti-hero trope manifesting musically? It's funny, the um, across the three different games, there's very different ways that the games show the anti-hero theme, in a sense. The So for Red Dead Redemption, there is a very strong sort of Lone Ranger-type music. I would refer to, like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. gives a sense of, I don't know, sort of a lone ranger, well, I, I can't describe it way. It's like a lone ranger, like, by themselves sort of thing. What else did you find was happening in the music? The other things I noticed about the music in that, there is very little in terms of large orchestral sound. So there is a snare drum in the background and a cymbal in the background, but for the most part, it's very soloistic instrument. For Uncharted, there, it's completely different. It's a very large orchestral sound, quite heavily percussion driven, as well as occasional atonal flute melodies, which sort of add this aspect of mystery or impending conflict as you're waiting for the change in music to happen. All right, and that was a musical example from Uncharted 2. Can you tell us a little bit about Just Cause 3? It's extremely percussion-driven. There are many different types of scales used, mainly pentatonic scales. As for the actual gameplay itself, the change in music when you are just free-roaming the world compared to when you actually are faced with conflict changes quite rapidly. It's a very slow, docile, melodic tune when just free-roaming, and then as soon as you encounter something that poses a threat, the change in music is very rapid and it's very fast-paced and percussion is introduced quite quickly. All right, so Andrew's just talked about change of music and instrumentation. Caitlin, can you tell us about changes to the music in your game as it pertains to social class? You were talking previously about the waltz in particular. Yeah, so 
In Western audiences, the waltz is recognized as this pompous dance of old Western culture, upper class. Although at the time it was popular in the 19th century, it was actually popular among all sorts of people. But it's generally recognized as like a pompous upper class thing today. So thinking back to what Andrew said, how does instrumentation affect our interpretation of the characters? Cyrus suits the Vienna Waltz very well. It's a very grandiose song that represents him and its full orchestra with brass and timpani. Primrose, on the other hand, she doesn't use the waltz specifically, but as a dancer, the 3-4 obviously ties into what Western audiences recognize as dance. For her, however, because of her new location in Sunshade, She's represented by foreign instruments, not specifically of one culture, because this is often used to just express a foreignness or exoticness to Western audiences. The issue with her, however, by using these foreign instruments so broadly, with the implication of her falling from grace, as to say, from her previous status, it suggests that the foreign part of her representation is the underclass and the exotic, impoverished people. As she works as an exotic dancer, it also ties into that idea of foreign women having exotic beauty. Although she's not technically a foreign woman, but she's presenting herself that way. The waltz rhythm does refer to her previous life, and it is mixed in with the foreign instruments to suggest her current state. But it just goes to show how tropes can be used in a great way to connect characters together, as Primrose and Cyrus's, or Primrose's previous status and Cyrus's current status, are suggested by the waltz rhythm but it can't be removed from the stereotypes and the negative views of what these can suggest. Dr. Lynn, you look like you want to jump in. Yeah, I find this interesting because it's, it's essentially playing on the fact that as players, we have implicit biases towards certain kinds of sounds, yeah. certain kinds of instrumentation. Um, and we don't. I don't think we always reflect on the fact that sometimes these are actually very stereotypical and sometimes even borderline racist. Oh, yeah. Um, whether it is an octopath traveler or not, I don't know. But the... You know, the idea that we are taking something like an Eastern instrument to represent foreignness is very much a flattening of, of style. Um, I think partly, you know, they can maybe be a little bit redeemed here in the fact that not everyone is going to identify that instrument as being from a specific place just because people aren't necessarily familiar with the instrumentation. Yeah, and the instruments actually, because they're so broad, it could help to actually, I mean, it's part of the trope that Western people don't recognize what culture it's from, so yep. they just refer it to as foreign. But the tabla, the Indian tabla is used, the santur, which is generally considered a Middle Eastern and Mesopotamian instrument. And there's a guitar and there's African percussion instruments. So it's quite broad. It still gets that foreign trope to Western audiences, but it could help to the way that it doesn't specifically target one demographic. So we've noticed a few common threads in the games that we're observing so far. Uh, we want to turn the floor and questions now over to you, Dr. Lind. Caitlin ended up talking about the idea of stereotypes, and that certainly comes up in our games as well. Uh, Andrew, when you were talking about the Western stereotype and how we have that. 
and Caitlin, you've talked about the idea of essentially seeing waltz as upper class music and representing upper class people and the sort of the problems in juxtaposing that with other instrumentation. So what kind of stereotypes are we really seeing in these games? We are essentially seeing stereotypes as our tropes, as our common narrative structures. Are we seeing other stereotypes beyond what we've identified already? To link it to something like the idea of this epic video game, every game that I consider to be this idea of epic has a common aspect and generally the soundtrack behind the game or at least most of the music behind the game has a a large ensemble playing very what most of the time is very tonal and almost classical pieces so it's it's this idea of a big orchestral sound there's a large percussion section a large horn section there's a large woodwind section and each of them have their own role to play within the larger scale of the music um, within the game Yeah, I find particularly interesting, I mean, you both cited in your action-based games the role of percussion in particular in generating energy, and Brooke, you ended up talking about that a little bit with your game. Mm -hmm. Um, In boss fights in particular, it's one of the main ways that energy is actually created for the player, and one of the main ways that tension is actually created for the player. Were you seeing that in Dark Souls? Yeah, for sure. I think that to kind of go off what Andrew was saying about these big sweeping scores, like just having that big sound that's overwhelming and talking about this driving beat that comes back into play. And when I think of something like a battle, I think of like people marching and that's where this like percussion would come in or this driving beat. I think of, you know, like your heart racing because you're frightened. Another element that's used a lot is um, chant and stuff. And actually, you talking about Skyrim, I think of when you go through those dungeons and as soon as you meet some sort of enemy or you encounter this boss, there is a lot of chant happening. There's a lot of this beat that's pulsing throughout. And it kind of, it does make your blood rise a little bit and like you, your heartbeat beat a little faster because you know that something's coming and you're anticipating this kind of big instance or occurrence that's going to happen. Yeah, and one of the biggest instances in Skyrim is essentially when you encounter dragons, right? You're walking along through the forest or whatever environment that you're in, and all of a sudden you start to hear percussion and whispered chant in the background. And that is really the thing, as the player, is the cue that you need to prep for the fight that's coming now. Um, The dragon fights are essentially the boss fight equivalent in Mm -hmm. those games. So it strikes me that the role of percussion in particular seems to be quite strong in these games in order to generate energy. We'll end up talking about this in a future podcast and how that affects uh, things like driving games in particular. So Caitlin, one of the things you ended up speaking about was the role that instruments have to reflect certain in-game cultures. One of the things which you saw, which I saw as well when I looked at Skyrim, is that instruments are often misappropriated. There's a new game world or a culture created within the universe of the game where the designers basically steal styles or instruments that actually exist in the real world. In your game, you talked about the role of the Santur as representing foreignness. In my game, it's really the idea of Anglo-Celtic folk music and, in particular, modalism being used to represent fantasy universes. But I'm wondering if either, Andrew or Brooke, if you've encountered this sort of stereotyping of musical styles as well. There's definitely, across all three games that I looked into, geoculture pops up just about everywhere. In Red Dead Redemption, the Western idea of music by itself is is a, a geoculture itself. It's the idea of the lone flute with either very little or some moderate percussion in the background. It's standalone, it's reminiscent and indicative of this idea of like being out in the desert, small towns, cowboys sort of, it, it, it makes those sort of references. 
With Uncharted, there's, as I said before, there's this idea of epic when there's this large orchestral sound. However, there are some smaller pieces that are just an atonal flute melody, which lead to this sort of exploration and wonder aspect. And atonal music is sort of in itself a very, very specific geoculture. And it's one that's not often used today. Not many, not many people enjoy it as much as some people do. It is used a lot to reflect horror tropes. Yeah. So you see it a lot in horror films. You see it in games like Silent Hill. You see it in games such as Resident Evil series. And the idea is, you know, the dissonance is putting you on edge as you're wandering around the environment and when you're not sure whether you're going to be attacked or not. Very much so. And Just Cause 3 is is no different. I mentioned before that it's very percussion-driven. However, at the same time, the melodies that are used within it are very characteristic of Spanish or Western European melodies. Like, there's often pentatonic scales that are being used. It's very characteristic of Spanish music. There's guitar, and the melodies are played on the guitar with little to no percussion in the background. It's, it's, very, it's in the style of the game, um, modeled after the character and where they're from. So I'm curious, of all the musical realizations of tropes that you've examined so far, are they meeting your expectations? Sometimes what we see are games that actually thwart our expectations. They set up a reference to a previous element or culture, but then they actually do something dramatically different from what that expectation is. Brooke, what are your thoughts? So for Dark Souls, I think that some of these battles actually thwart these common conceptions of boss battles, such as the final boss battle in Dark Souls is against this Lord Gwyn of Cinder, and you expect probably the most extravagant or emphasized music in the gameplay. However, it does the exact opposite of that. The music is composed as just a solo piano. There's no big orchestra, there's no drum pulse. It's just very much this solo piano and it sounds very minor and like unnerving and it has this slow pulse actually. It's very much like a waltz and it recontextualizes this battle occurring, not as an epic adventure, but the sad ending to a story. Um, And having those expectations and thwarting them, it creates this more of an effect on the audience and makes them reflect on the character and the boss motives, persona, etc. And it also makes that moment more memorable and effective for the players, drawing them in more. So it sounds like the music is really trying to create an effect of poignancy and regret. Am I right about Mm -hmm. that? Yes, definitely. Brooke, you talked about the music being unnerving. What aspects of it are contributing to that feeling? This piece especially is more sad than something that would frighten you comparatively to other boss battles that happen within the game. A lot of that is I find you're very defensive and you're on edge and this battle it's very contrasting and different from the other ones that happen because you're more empathetic I guess to the the person you're up against and it really makes you think well what is the story behind this character and why why am i battling this person why it, it feels like you're more sympathetic towards them and you there is some sort of story behind this versus other characters that there's this big epic sound and you know i don't think many people really put those as other i guess in quotations human comparatively like you wouldn't you would just kill them because it's like oh it's just the next boss Caitlin, in Octopath Traveler, what kind of expectations do we see met or not met? The uh, tropes actually in Octopath um, for the representing characters is 
quite standard, I guess. Um, the one interesting thing about Cyrus is that they specifically used the fast Viennan waltz. Since most people today would be more familiar with the modern waltzes, the slower, more, I, I guess I would say tropey, because it's much more familiar to a lot of uh, people these days, like the international or the American waltz. But the use of the Viennan waltz, it suits Cyrus's character very well, as he's a very eccentric person. But it's interesting that they would use the faster version specifically. Now, it doesn't thwart any expectations, but a lot of people won't be familiar with what the Viennan waltz is and the differences, but they'll very clearly recognize the umpapa of the of the waltz. And another interesting thing is Primrose has two solo solo instruments, one being the santur and the other one being the violin. Now in this case, the violin, because pretty much everyone recognizes the violin as a Western instrument, as it is, that also ties into her previous life, which could be connected to Cyrus again, as waltzes are generally played by a small ensemble, or they've been recognized to play be played by a small string ensemble. And the violin is very idiomatic of the high Western culture of back in the day. So it doesn't thwart the expectations, but the way that Cyrus is specifically targeting a type of waltz and Primrose uses rhythm and an instrument to connect herself to Cyrus's way of life or her previous way of life was, is actually quite interesting and isn't explicitly connected like in words to the audience, but you can hear that. So is this foreshadowing in any kind of way? Because that's actually a very common way to use music in games, is to connect two characters very early on in the game, but without saying it explicitly. Actually, this each story is quite separate. They have a conjoined um, story at the very end, like all eight characters, but it's more of like a beat the final bad guy kind of thing, and all eight characters have to unite. And I don't want to get into the spoiler territories, because it's not too important, um, the final bit, to what we're talking about. They do have very separate lives. I tried to look, figure out where Primrose was. I'm not sure if it mentions in the game. I couldn't find where her original house was. I don't know if it would be Atlas Dam, but that would be a very interesting connection. But their stories don't converge in the way that you would normally expect a, a Japanese RPG. Because usually what happens in Japanese RPGs is that you play as one specific character you're given in the beginning of the game. And usually he, it's sometimes be she too, but commonly it's a, a male protagonist. He travels and as he travels, different characters join his party. In this case, you can choose who to start with and you can decide to have no one in your party if you want. You won't be able to do the final story ending, but that's more of an optional thing. And you can get all eight characters to join your party, but they do have very separate stories so that you don't have to play all the characters, and if you do, you don't have to do them in order. So Cyrus and Primrose, besides the music connection, they don't have specific story relationships. We're coming into the final few minutes of today's podcast. Let's get some concluding thoughts on the overall discussion we've had today. Andrew, why don't we give you the floor to finish up by talking about your games? So throughout all the music between the three games that I looked at, they each have their own individual characteristics and features 
but each emphasize specific instruments for an overall effect. So to be more specific about that, the music throughout the games are used to create feelings of tension, wonder, suspicion, and adventure. And in some way or another, this enhances the gameplay and the experience for the player who's actually completing these tasks. Sometimes the music reminds the player of how evil the character actually is, depending on what type of music is being played. The music of the game is also used for other purposes, such as such as creating tension. The idea of these big, large melodies and orchestral sounds reminding us just how big the world you can explore is, as well as the never-ending exploration of this environment within the game. Dr. Lind, is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, I think one of the key unifying points that we're really hearing here is that there's an extra layer of stuff happening because of music, basically. It speaks to the emotional life of what's happening in the game. It speaks to some unspoken elements of narrative. And it really gets to the idea that, you know, creating tension in ways that we, we want to do without actually having dialogue, necessarily, without actually having characters explicitly say something. And parallels in much the same way things like, you know, facial expressions or tone of voice or even, you know, sort of eye contact might have in a real-life situation. I think there's a lot of nuance here that we're not necessarily 100% conscious of. We're picking up subconsciously, which really, really amplifies uh, our immersion in the game and our experiences with the game. It really personalizes it. So it's pretty clear there's a lot going on with video game music. What can we expect coming up from this podcast? Well, in future episodes, uh, we're going to focus on a few different topics. Our next episode is going to focus on music in war games. Not necessarily first-person shooters, although we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, but about just war and its various components um, and how music can really connect to the emotional component in that sense. Uh, Some of our subsequent podcasts, we're going to have one on what we call geoculture, which is about the link between creating fictional cultures and then linking that to real-world musical elements. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about farming sim games and how they make you relaxed. Uh, And then we're going to conclude our our first six episodes uh, with podcasts on leitmotif, recurring themes, uh, as well as driving games. Sort of what what about driving games really makes them energetic and makes you want to go fast. This brings us to the end of today's podcast. You've been listening to Game Music 101. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.